particularly here. Uh, the, it's time for a little bedtime story, so honey, uh, climb up on my knee and uh, we'll uh, start to communicate. <laughs> <laughs> In that nice little culture here. I just had one of the great uh, thrills of my showbiz experience. You know what the showbiz? You, you know you live a life of total, uh, total uh, surrealism in this racket, and. Uh, there's a lot that goes on in my life that you don't hear about on this air, I'll tell you that. But uh, this particular moment was classic. I sang and worked a duet with Butterfly McQueen. Hey, have you heard that what I just said? Now, come on, you guys, break it up in there for a minute. I did a duet with Butterfly McQueen on the stage, and we did Carmen. We really did. You know who Butterfly McQueen is, don't you? A little round lady. And uh, backstage, we're sitting there, and she says, uh, what do we do? And I said, well, I don't know, honey. What do you want to do? And she says, let's bring a little culture to this evening. And I said, okay, Butterfly, what'll it be? Let's sing Carmen. <laughs> what a moment. And so, by God, I'll, how about, how's that for, for brass? Before 800 elegant guests, we marched right out on the stage... With no rehearsal, and Butterfly McQueen and myself did selections from Carmen. To a resounding applause when we left the stage. <laughs> please, uh, George, will you give me a salute there, please? I need this. Big. Hit it hard. Big. <laughs> It's that organ twanger. Tonight, this important radio station takes time out in its busy schedule as part of its vast public service programming to salute an unknown citizen out there who finally did the thing that all of us want to do, by God. Do any of you know the name Jolene Guerin? Now, from evermore, you will know the name of Jolene Guerin, because she did it. All right, hold it there. That's enough there, Charlie. It's enough. Thank you. Thank you, George. You're real good. Uh, you probably read the piece, but if you didn't, man, I just had to go into our vast file here of uh, how things were this time. <laughs> and uh, curiously enough, this appeared in a local paper, a local out-of-town paper, the Stamford, Connecticut Advocate. I don't know what they advocate, but they got that name up there anyway. They advocate, and it's right above a an ad for seamless aluminum gutters. And an ad for the Junior Circus Huffy Puffy Train. Whatever the hell that is, it says great toy for preschoolers. And I don't know whether there's a significance here, but uh, I will read to you the piece. And I will let you know what Jolene Guerin says. She's from San Pedro, California. 
Jolene Guerin says she was poor before she inherited $200,000 four years ago. Now she's poor again and cheerfully admits, and we quote, we blew it. Did you read this? <laughs> Did you read the whole story? You know, a lot of times in New York City, they cut off a lot of the good quotes. Well, you get the whole story here. Mrs. Guerin was living... I'll tell you, she, she has to be one of the last of the truly honest, real people. I mean, there, there aren't many of them around, you know. We're, I'm, we're getting preached at from all sides these days, friends. And uh, I'll tell you, if I hear one more preacher sandwiched in between Zsa, Zsa Gabor and Victor Borga on, uh, on the Johnny Carson show, I think I'll fall. As a matter of fact, my TV set will blow up. i got a very nervous TV set. But uh, nevertheless, here's what Mrs. Guerin did and what happened. She was living in a 75-buck-a-month apartment when she learned that she would inherit 200 grand from the estate of her father, the late Chester Hansen, with her husband Leonard, that's Mrs. Jolene's husband, a merchant marine seaman, and their four children. She waited. You know, the guy passed on 200 grand. She waited through two years of court action for the dough. And the taxes took part of it. And here's what she said then when it arrived in a big package, you know, all tied up with a, you know, with a rubber band around it. It says <laughs> money on it. <laughs> Wouldn't you love to get a big package? You know, how many times have you seen in cartoons guys running around? It shows uh, John Q. Public. You know, John Q. Public, he's always, he always looks the same. He's got these little thin glasses and all. It says John Q. Public, and uh, on top of a, you know, over him is looming this thing. It says Big Business. Shows this big guy with a high silk hat. And he's got in each hand a bag with a dollar sign on it. You've seen that? How many times have you seen that in the cartoons? I have never seen a bag in my life with a dollar sign on it. Have you? Full of money. <laughs> I mean, I that's, uh, you know, but that's one of the things that, that we live with. And I guess maybe that's one of the reasons why most of us feel like our lives hasn't, haven't come to total fruition. You know, I, I never see that kind of bag. I wouldn't it be great if they started to pay you that way? Give you a little bag with a money sign on it. And uh, you could tell how good the guy was doing by how big the bag is. Boy, that would cause dissension among the troops. I mean, can't you see the head man around here at the station leaving the elevator downstairs? And he's got this big gunny sack over his shoulder, so he's got a money sign. <laughs> and all the rest of the people, you know, walking out, and they got this little bag about the size for marbles. It's got a little dollar sign on it, and it rattles when he moves it up and down. You see, there ain't nothing in there that squishes. It rattles. <laughs> All right. Uh, anyway, they were getting 75 bananas a week, see? That's that's not much, though, you know. That's what they were living on. Remember that. That's important. $75 a week isn't much today with four kids, you know. And, and uh, that's right. Well, they got 200 grand. And uh, she says, uh, when it came, it really wore us out, spending it, she recalls. And we quote, we were just exhausted. We couldn't spend it fast enough. Well, where did all the money go? Well, we bought cars. We bought the motorcycles for the boys. A truck. <laughs> a $202,000 hi-fi set and clothes. We put a down payment on a house. The girls had all their teeth fixed and capped, and I had my breasts lifted. Kind of like that. Nice little touch. She had her breasts lifted. Oh, yes, uh, we bought ski equipment. And we traveled. We put 200,000 miles on one of the cars in one year. <whistles> now, wait a minute. Think about that figure. 200,000 miles on one car. 
in one year. Now, let's see. Figure that out. The average driver puts around 10,000 miles a year on his car. That's a lot of driving. She says, I invested $10,000 in the stock market and lost $4,000 of it. We spent 5000 on new furniture, a washer, and a dryer. We paid cash for everything. Did you learn any lessons, uh, Mrs. Gearin? Well, you can sure waste a lot of money for cars, and the stock market is a bad investment. Lasting effects? Has it really affected you, Mrs. Guerin? Well, when we found out about the money, it brought the family together. It was the first time in our lives that we really worked and planned together. <laughs> After the money was gone, well, we started fighting. They kept saying, why didn't we spend it this way? But uh, they were all there to spend it, certainly when the time came, and we all had fun. But now we're fighting like cats and dogs about why we didn't spend it every other different way. It made us all different. <laughs> the family needed this. But all of a sudden, when we realized we were broke, we decided that there was a brand new world out there. We all got smart. We realize that now that the fun is over. Oh, man, what a sad story. We realize it now that the fun is over. <laughs> Her son, Leonard Jr., had enough left from his inheritance to split and go to Australia. Fred, 18, is now studying electronics in a vocational school. Mary is studying education at the College of the Siskiyou in Northern California. Advice to those who inherit a fortune? This is what Mrs. Guerin says. It would, well, it probably would be a smarter thing to go out and buy just a few things, a fur coat and a Cadillac, and then invest the rest <laughs> and live off the investment. Well, would she follow that advice? Would you follow that advice, Mrs. Guerin? Well, uh, I'd do exactly the same thing I did. I'd blow it. My God, an honest lady. Well, now, you know, did you ever... That's never happened to me. I never had to worry about that. I, you know, uh, my old man, when he went to his great reward, left me a box full of United Cigar Store coupons, which are, you know, that's the same as... Uh, you know, a bunch of coupons that you get in the back of cigarettes, you know, the kind. <laughs> That's about all he ever saved. <laughs> Incidentally, he really was fanatical about saving cigar store coupons. He loved them. Well, you, ever, you ever see cigar store coupons? You know what they are? Well, they're, uh, they're the same as, uh, well, uh, it's just like the coupons you get today in the back of certain cigarettes. You know, it says good for one ninetieth of a cent or something like that, and you take them to a redemption center. Well, the old man saved cigar store coupons. There was a cigar store in the neighborhood. And every time he'd go there and buy more cigarettes, they would give him these little coupons. Some of them were orange, some of them were green, depending on how much valuable they were. And he packed them away, and he'd sit and count them. He never never redeemed them for anything. Just loved to have the coupons. And he'd sit and count them. And then he'd get this catalog, and all the great stuff you could get, like uh, if you collect over 12.5 million coupons, and you get one-third of a coupon per package of cigarettes. See, you could get uh, an end table made out of beer bottles. You know, <laughs> real great stuff. And you'd sit there and look. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it's maddening. I, it, it's, have you ever tried, have you ever had a friend that, that went totally ape over some money they got? Have you ever tried to give anybody any kind of advice? You know, advice is one of those things which is a, I, I've often thought about this. Have you ever actually taken anybody else's advice? I mean, actually done it. Now, come on, be honest. Now, the only kind of advice anybody will take is when the guy's already decided to do that anyway. 
and he looks around to get somebody's uh, corroboration. You know, you keep looking for the right guy. You know, if you say I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to jump out of the third story window here because I admitted these wings. See, and I'm going to, I know that I can fly, and if I. Uh, if I flap my wings, you know, my arms hard enough, the wings will go, and I'll be able to fly from here all the way to the Empire State Building. When you go to about 20 of your friends, you tell them this. And they'll say, oh, yeah, your mind, Clarence, for God's sakes, come on, grow up, will you? Well, you guys don't have no imagination. Then you find that one dildock in the mailroom. Yeah, that's a good idea. So well, that's, that's the advice you take. And speaking of dildocks, this is W.O.R. New York. Right, WR New York. We have a couple of commercials here for you. Will you hit the button there, Charlie? There you go. Come on, sing it, gang, all together. Get up and sing. This is an American song. There's a promise for all of us. We're gonna... Just for you. Oh, you're singing good. Come on, let's get that gut in there. Sing it out. The kind of dealer that you look for wants to do what you want to do. Yeah, sing. The kind of guy who thinks that you are number one. Number one, number one, number one. Like a friend that you can turn to. Like a friend who's here A today. real friend. The kind of dealer that America wants today. Yes, sir, a friend you can turn to. Here we go. Chrysler Limit. Bum, bum, bum. Coming through. Coming through. Chrysler Limit. Yeah, coming through. The America's number one Chrysler Plymouth dealers. Your Chrysler Plymouth dealers of New York, New Jersey, and Fairfield County. Act now while the price freeze is still on. Chrysler Plymouth. All right, friend, I want you to imagine now you're at an intimate table graced by candlelight. The sounds of strolling musicians create a mellow mood as you enjoy a sumptuous dinner prepared in the continental style. No, you are not in a Parisian cafe but in the delightful Les Champs restaurant right in the heart of Manhattan on East 40th Street between Park and Madison. At Les Champs, you'll find not only authentic French dishes, but also an international cuisine of exotic meats and seafood entrees, as well as hearty steaks and tender prime ribs, all at moderate prices. That's Les Champs, the continental restaurant with the strolling musicians, the international menu, and the free limousine service. Les Champs. 25 East 40th Street between Park and the Madison Avenue. For reservations, call LE2-6566. I repeat, LE2-6566. Oh, boy, that, that tires you out. It says there on the top of it, it says, read in continental romantic manner. Did I pull it off all right? Yes, love Isa Ball, indeed more. And now we have the paid political announcement. In New Jersey, where I was raised, we're losing 80 acres of open spaces every day. And we are forced to export half of our college-bound students to other states. Your yes vote on election day for public questions one and three will expand our colleges and preserve thousands of acres of open land. Give New Jersey room to learn and room to breathe. Vote yes on questions one and three on November 2. Paid for by New Jersey Bonds Yes Committee. Yes, is this... Uh, who was that? That sounded familiar. Who was that? That voice? Very familiar. I know it was my old man. He wasn't raised in Jersey. Oh, no. He wasn't raised at all. He festered. On the south side of Chicago. Speaking of festering, friends, 
I'm going to be infesting the stage at Princeton University Alexander Hall November 6th. That is a Saturday night. And you write this down in your thingy. November 6th, Alexander Hall. Be there. Put little lines under it. Underline it. That is an order. Princeton University, November 6th, 8.30 p.m., Alexander Hall. And all seats are reserved. <laughs> Ticket orders. Now, if you want to order by mail, get on the shtick. I mean, get on the stick. Send stamp, self... <laughs> I'm sorry, George. <laughs> George, you know, you're, you're my best uh, audience. <laughs> I don't know whether you're laughing with me or at me, George. I never can tell, man. You're enigmatic. <laughs> by mail, <laughs> enigmatic. That's, isn't, that, isn't that a little country next to uh, Latvia? No, no, I guess that's another word. For mail, <laughs> if you want to order by mail, friends, send a stamped, self-addressed envelope. That means one addressed to you. Chowderhead. Check for $3. Payable, that's $3 for every seat. Don't think you can buy the house for 3 bucks. Check for $3. Payable to WPRB. That's the local radio station. Actually, that's the college station at Princeton. Mm, yeah. And that we're doing a little benefity there for them so they can buy a lot of rotten records and obscene discs and stuff. You know, keep culture moving there in Princeton. WPRB, Box 342, Princeton, New Jersey. Okay? And the tickets are on sale in person if you want to drop by there at the Princeton University Store, University Place, Princeton, New Jersey, of course. Where else? There will be no tickets available at the door, so order now. And that is November 6th, Saturday night, Alexander Hall, 8.30 p.m. Princeton. Bum, bum, bum. Okay. <laughs> well, no, I, I, you know, when you talk about, when you talk about trying, to, trying to, you know, give people advice, they don't want advice. I mean, ain't nobody want no advice. I don't want no advice. And, and I'll tell you, if I, if I get one letter a, a week, I get 5,000 letters that begin with this, you know, the typical. Now, look, Shepard, remember, I am your friend since I am your listener. <laughs> yeah. I'm your friend since I'm your listener. This is an objective letter, and I want you to take it to heart because I'm giving you really good advice. Me and my friends, dot, 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 advice. Advice. Did I ever tell you about the time I talked to Ralph Hauk about that? You know who, you know how Hauk is. He's the, if you don't know, he's the manager of the New York Yankees. Hauk says he gets that, that, uh, that kind of, he says that his head kind of turns to cheesecake. Every morning when he comes, he's got, you know, this office up at Yankee Stadium. He shows up there. Oh, yeah, you know, managers show up very early in the morning, and they have all kinds of things to sign, like uh, laundry bills for sweat socks. And You don't know that about managers, do you? Well, they do that stuff. Oh, they do. And then he'll, he'll turn around. Oh, yeah, managers have a lot of bad jobs, like uh, the, the, the guy that's in charge of the clubhouse will come in, say, and he's complaining. And uh, the next thing to know, the manager's hollering at them. Now, look, you tell those guys that if they don't quit stealing the soap, I don't care if he's a great outfielder, I don't want no more soap stolen. We're buying soap for half the damn state of New Jersey. Now, cut it out. And then he skulks out. This is something that the, that the people never write about, you know. <laughs> and uh, the guys like Milk Gross, they never write about how tough it really is to be a manager. Say, then five minutes later, a guy comes in and says, all right, boss. We're, 30, we're 36 sweatshirts short this week. 36 sweatshirts short. All right. This is what, you know that this is what a manager of a ball team has to do? And then five minutes later, a ball player comes in. He's crying. He wants to get traded to San Diego because his wife's mother lives there. 
And the, he says, I don't care about your wife's mother. We're trying to win a pennant. And then he turns around and says, I'm oppressed. Ball press, I'm oppressed. I'm going to write to the Congress. Out he goes. Oh, God. Well, one of the worst moments before old Mr. Houck and other managers is when the mail comes in. Usually 17 pounds of mail comes into this as an average mail. So, uh, of course, it goes up and down depending on what position the ball team is in the standings of that particular week. Now, if the ball team is in first place, he gets very little mail. But the lower you sink in the standings, the greater the mail volume comes in. All from guys who once played baseball with the Little League team when they were 12 and now they're 48. And they're giving, they're giving Mr. Hauk serious, objective advice. <laughs> now, what to do about that hole up the middle of the infield, you know? How to deal with how to deal with the batting order. And he says, you know, you've got to answer these people. Yes, your advice was taken uh, very seriously. However, we're afraid that Joe DiMaggio does not want to come back out of retirement. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it, I've, never, I've never seriously ever honestly taken any advice from anybody else, and I don't think you have either. If you have, you're in trouble. Because advice is quite often sneaky. You know, I wonder. Now let's 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 lay it on the line here for a minute. You know, here we're talking to Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Gear, and you know, the lady with all the with all the jack. And I'm sure she got a lot of unsolicited advice. And uh, now they're all sitting around saying, "I told you so." Yeah, except for one thing. Obviously, Jolene Gearin had one hell of a good time. Now, how many people have a time like that ever in their life? I mean, you know, just squirt it all out. I don't care. What? You want a Cadillac? Uh, what color you want? Okay. Here, give me the check. I'll sign. <laughs> it's kind of a groovy way to live, you know. And this is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And I have to congratulate Mrs. Gearing for not listening to those serious men who come around with the dark gray suits who have uh, very serious suggestions on what mutual funds to buy. Oh. I feel sorry for guys that pay a lot of money out every month to insurance. I never could figure out what that's all about. But they... <laughs> I'm, not, I'm sorry. They never have, but I guess it's about something. All them people wouldn't be doing it, right, George? Uh, you know, that feeling that you're in good hands. Well, are you? I mean, a, a bolt of lightning come down and it hits you right there on top of the head. You know, right in the middle of the street one day, pow, like that. Do you go off to your great reward knowing that you've paid up with the insurance and somehow it's better? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, ultimately. And I, I often worry, you know, advice. In fact, almost every, uh, every critic who writes in any newspaper has great reams of advice to give to Edward Albee about how to write plays. Yeah. I wonder if Edward Albee has any advice on critics on how to critic. I'm sure. But that doesn't get printed. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> But the advice has become a major business in our time. Uh, advice. How many books are written right now that you can see on the newsstands on the one, uh, How to Cure the Race Problem? There must be 20 million of those books right there. Book clubs, they're going out by the millions. Uh, how, to, uh, how to deal with uh, Vietnam and the uh, Far Eastern problem, right? How many? Oh, that's, that's all advice. And people keep getting mad that the president don't do it. You know, 
He's doing his own thing. Say, well, I don't know. The sad thing about advice is it is it's extremely subjective. And and you can't tell whether advice is advice or whether it's a sub, really a subliminal attempt on the part of the other guy to sink you once and for all. I mean, to really sink you once and for all. Because I think one of the great motivating factors in men's lives, after boredom, and I think boredom is what, you know, I think boredom plays a hell of a role in our life. After boredom is... There has to be a better word. Jealousy. Let me... That, that's a weak word for what I'm trying to say, and I don't know of any better word, really. It's jealousy. A deep, way down deep inside jealousy. I don't mean the top kind. I don't mean the kind, oh boy, do I wish I had a Cadillac like Fred. That's not jealousy, that's envy. There's a difference between jealousy and envy. <laughs> I'm talking about the way down deep inside feeling of disappointment that almost everybody in his life has. Almost everybody feels his life ain't really worked out. Somehow, he really, he really booted it. Someplace along the line, he made, you know, fantastic, colossal, cosmic boo-boos. And now here he is. And then he sees other guys who apparently didn't do that. And man, they are really going. There they are sitting there, <laughs> flapping their wings, you know, and a big fat old tail is bushy. You know, it's got all spots all over him. He's got this thick, rich fur all over him. <laughs> he's sitting on top of the tree there, quacking and clucking away. And he's got his own little cache of acorns down there, everything. And he's flapping. All the chicks are coming around and hanging out to a man. The guy's sitting down there looking up, see? Why the hell does he make it like that? He puts his socks on the same way as I do. Look at him. Well, the question, does he? Does he really put his socks on the way you do? I mean, of course, metaphorically speaking, I'm saying <laughs> to that deep-seated jealousy. Way down deep inside. You know, I'll tell you a very, very interesting story about... And, and, and I, I'm going to change all the facts. I'm gonna, uh, it's not... This is... Uh, I'm going to put it into different terms. But I knew a person one time who did exactly what Mrs. Guerin did. It was really sad in a crazy way, though, because this person didn't get the fun out of it that Garen got. I knew a person who was working a very menial job, tiny little job, see, around. And uh, all of a sudden, she, he, it inherited about $100,000. Just like that. Bam. Well, this person came to me and said the following. <laughs> what shall I do with it? And I said, well, honey, I don't know what to do with that. I mean, it's your dough. I don't know what you're going to do with it, but I'll tell you what you better do. You better go to somebody who knows about that kind of thing and, and put it in a place where you can't touch it. So it's going to be there. And uh, so that's what happened went to see this person. 
Very, very famous lawyer, by the way, who handles nothing but estates of this kind, see? And three days later, he called me up. He says, what, what do you want me to do? I said, what do you mean? He says, what do you want me to do? I said, well, what, what are you driving at? He said, man, he, she, it is going to blow that money in about two weeks on this phony that's hanging around. Come sniffing around real quick. Well, I said, well, what do you want me to do? He says, well, well, give he, she, or it a talking to. Tell him that this, this is a phony hanging around. Well, I tried. Well, friends, I, all I got to say is when somebody is in the clutches of a, when somebody is in the clutches of a, of a, of a con man, there ain't nothing you can do. Have you ever seen a con man at work? Have you ever, ever really seen one? Well, a con man, of course, he, he's got what they call the sweet talk. He's got that silver sweet talk, and he's got that look in the eye. And, man, he makes you feel like, he makes you feel like that he knows nothing but love for you. Nothing but love. And, and there ain't nothing else motivating him. In fact, I, you know, speaking of con men, I don't know, you know, I don't know what your, what your old man talked about when you were a kid and who your old man admired. No, I'm, I'm serious. You know, you can judge a lot by, by a guy, by who he, who he admires. You know, who he, who, he, who he digs. And one of the first guys I remember my old man talking about, never forget one time we're sitting around the kitchen table, see, and there's an article in the paper. He's got this article, see. And he's reading the paper, Chicago. Now, he usually only read the sport page, see. But this day, he's sitting there very silent. See, the old man is reading about one of his gods, one of his heroes. He finally puts the paper down. He says, my God, you got to admire this guy. This is a really great man. Well, I'm about seven. You know, to me, great men were Santa Claus. It's about the extent of it, you know. <laughs> I heard rumors of somebody named Lou Gapling, but that was only a rumor at that point. You know, and I... To me, a great man was, uh, you know, Santa Claus, my Uncle Tom, who was a bootlegger. And, uh, yes, he, he really was. And he had a gigantic, fantastically vicious, evil, great German shepherd named King. And I never could understand why he had that dog. You couldn't get near him. Uh, King lived in the backyard, and they had one of the chicken wire fences around the back, about 38 feet high. That son of a gun went over a 30-foot fence one time. And, of course, so he was trained to watch out for fuzz. I didn't know that, but he had a special nose for fuzz. And uh, I thought Uncle Tom was just an unbelievable uncle because every time I came over there, Uncle Tom, with, uh, he's, the only uncle Tom he's the only uncle I ever knew that let me look at dirty books. And he had a collection of them, and when i come over there, he'd give them to me to look at. And I never knew that upstairs, you know, in the front office in my home. Uh, every home has a front office, you know, that's uh, the old lady. And so, nevertheless... This day, my old man, so he's sitting there and he says, My God, here's a great man. Who do you think my father thought was a great man? You ready, Bob? Well, as a kid, I didn't know who he was, this great man. The name he used, he, told, he said. And it wasn't until later that I learned who this guy was. One of the very earliest people that my father admired was a man named Yellow Kid Wild. Did you ever hear of Yellow Kid Wild? Some people pronounce it Wheel. Yellow Kid Wild. 
Never heard of him, did you? That's because you lived in a respectable house. I'm sure you did. You're, <laughs> I mean, your father probably admired some guy who uh, started Liberty Mutual. You know, <laughs> some great man like that. Or some guy that ran the local Chevy agency that really made it, you know. Well, my old man, Doug Yellow Kid Wild. And I never thought anything about that. I thought, you know, I thought everybody uh, had a father who dug yellow kid wild. So I just went around. And one day, wasn't until I was in school, I was about in fifth grade, when we had to write an essay. This is how this came about. I wonder how many people's private life has suddenly been ripped asunder by an essay that the kid writes in school. Well, I'm sitting down there, and, and Miss Robinette, who was in fourth grade, she says, today we're going to, we want you to write a a, a uh, you remember when they used to have a thing you had to write in school called an essay or a turn, a paper, uh, a theme, they really called it. Write a theme? I wonder if Norman Mailer's writing themes when he writes his books. But uh, nevertheless, we had to write a theme. And the theme was a great man that you have heard about. So I figured, you oh, know, okay. So I go home and I said, <laughs> I said to my father, I'm going to write a great, about a great man. And he says, yep, okay. A very, very great man. I said, well, who, who would, you know, who, who was a great man? He says, well, Lincoln, great man. That's an official great man, remember. That isn't the great man that people really secretly dig. That's an official great man. I know, every kid's going to write about Lincoln. So I didn't do anything about it, except that I went into my room and I wrote a theme. And the theme, roughly stated, says, my father as a very great man that he reads about all the time in the newspaper. Because I remember reading about in the paper, see. His name is Yellow Kid Wild. And my father thinks he is a very great man. End of theme. I mean, that's the way you expand a theme when you're in fourth grade, see. Well, I handed this theme in. Now, this is, a, this is an absolutely true story. And, and by the way, it became later a curious family legend because of what happened as a result of it. I handed the theme in. And about two days later, back they came. And on my theme was written in red. You remember the red stuff the teachers would write on it, like B plus or C minus or what the hell is this, that kind of stuff. <laughs> or usually poor punctuation. They have, the teachers have a real thing about punctuation. I imagine this is why James Joyce wrote the way he did. He never punctuated anything. Can you imagine E.E. E. Cummings handing in a great poem to Miss Robinette and everything is in small case? You know, she said, what the hell is this in small case? You know, well, they never really seem to worry about the, the you know, the, what's in the guts of what you write. It's the way, it's the, you know, the framework, see, whether or not it's punctuated right or whether you made thumbprints on a paper. That's important. So, nevertheless, it came back and it said, see me. See me. That is a summons, you know. <laughs> see me. It was Miss Robinette. So I get the thing. I'm sitting in class. So after... You know, the bell rings after class. I go up to the front there, and there, were all, there was always about three or four other guys who were getting hell, usually after the class. See? So I walk up to the front, and Miss Robinette, we're all been in, in, in there by the class all by ourselves now, just me and Miss Robinette, who, by the way, always looked like she had a black football helmet on. She wore her hair like that, you know, kind of funny-looking hair. It looked like it had some kind of shellac or something on it, see? And she had blue-rimmed glasses, you know, the kind with the... The, the Harlequin-type glasses, blue-rimmed glasses. That's Miss Robinette, okay? So she says, Are you... Were you serious in your theme you wrote? And I said, Yes. You know, you know. 
I began to have a little fear, like I've really done something bad, see? And I said, uh, why? She said, did your father say that Yellow Kid Wild is a great man? Little fear. You know, we all know there's an instinct. People have an instinct when they know that they have really done it. Now, I don't know where this instinct comes from. It must come from the time when they were living in caves, you know. It has to go back even probably when we were amphibians or something, when you knew. I mean, you know, let's face it, we come from fish, you know. You know that, don't you? You know that? I hate to say this to you, Bob, but we were related to fish, ultimately. Well, can you imagine how terrible one of your very earliest ancestors must have been when he made a sudden rush for what he thought was a frog and he got hooked on a bassarino? Well, <laughs> you know... So I'm, I knew, you know, I knew something was wrong. And I said, what the, what, what, well, I said, the, I don't know. Uh, I don't think I spelled it right. She says, well, would you please take this note home and don't open it? I want you to take this note home to your mother and father. Well, have you ever taken a note home from a teacher? Man. I mean, that, and, and there it was. It was in an envelope and sealed. And it said on the outside, uh, Mrs. Shepherd. Underneath it, it said, uh, from Miss Robinette. I was scared out of my skull. And I, you know, I, I, at first I thought, well, I'm going to stick it down a sewer on the way home in the alley. You know? But then I knew that was no good, because what Miss Robinette always did was call up to find out whether the note got home. So, well, it's too late now. I guess this is the way guys must feel when their head is on the guillotine. When they see the bray, well, it's too late now. What the hell? <laughs> it's all over. So I take the thing home and I just give it to my mother. Here. She says, what's this? I said, Miss Robinette sent it home. She opens up the note. She's got this funny look on her face. And the old man was in the living room squatting down there reading the paper. And she says, now look what you've done. He says, what do you mean? She says, Jeannie... <laughs> You're going to have to go to PTA next time. I don't care whether you like PTA or not, you're going to have to go to PTA. You're going to have to talk to his teacher and explain it to him. And it started a whole thing rolling. Do you know who Yellow Kid Wire was? All right. Anybody who knows is out there probably flipping. Those of you who don't know, I'll ask Mac. Mac, tell those guys. Mac just came in. Tell those two guys in there who Yellow Kid Wire was. <laughs> Yellow Kid Wild, friends. Well, I won't say any more about it. I'll just let it hang there. And in the meantime, by the way, I have one more little note here I'm going to throw at you. Don't forget, Halloween, that's the 29th. We're going to have a big book signing. And this is going to settle all your guys' hash. They've been yelling. I haven't done any book signings here in New York. We're going to have a big book signing the 29th. That's Friday, 3 to 7 p.m. I don't know why four hours, but, man, that's, that's the way it is. 3 to 7 p.m. down in the village. And it's going to be at 8th Street and University Place. And you can bring your book down there, Wanda Hickey's Night of Gold. And after all, remember, this is a Halloween, and if you want to fly in on your broom, okay. we got a rack out there where you can park. Friday, October 29th, 3 to 7, Brentano's in the village, 8th Street and University Place. That's Friday, the 29th, okay? And we'll be there. And I just want to tell you, friends, I think, I think you can tell more about a family by the people they admire 
than by almost anything else. And I'm talking about who they admire when they're sitting around the dinner table or sitting squatting around drinking beer. I'm not talking about the people they admire when the pollster comes up and says, uh, you know, like they always have these pollsters, who do you think was the greatest man in the history of the United States? Well, uh, well, uh, George Washington. Well, do you really believe that? Do you really? But this is the official answer. Well, what I had done, I had done one of the worst things you can do. I had, I had uh, betrayed a family secret. I had laid out the secret of my old man for everybody to see. Yellow Kid Wild, friends, and I will tell you, I'm not going to leave you hanging. Was America's greatest confidence man. And you know why he was called Yellow Kid? Because he was famous for one thing. Yellow Kid was the, was the greatest con man who ever lived. Yellow Kid Wild. Well, they just, even to this day, they don't know how many flim flams Yellow Kid Wild pulled. I mean, he was legendary. He was, he was the Mickey Mantle, the Joe DiMaggio of, of, of con men. He had a tongue. Friends, if you heard of the silver tongue, this guy had a tongue of pure radium, platinum, magnificent. Oh, he was, he was, he was more than an imposter. He was fantastic. Yellow Kid Wild was called that because he wore yellow kid gloves wherever he went. That was his trademark. That was how good a con man he was. He could walk in wearing yellow kid gloves. Everybody knew. And within 15 minutes, he is leaving with that big gunny sack with the big dollar sign on the back. He has stripped them, shucked them clean as, a, as an ear of Iowa corn. <laughs> and as far as my old man was concerned, he was the greatest man who ever lived. Does that uh, tell you something, friends? <laughs> Now, in your silence out there, as you're contemplating your navel, who do you really think is a great man? Willie Sutton? He's pretty good. Uh, you know. Minnesota Fat? Not bad. But there were better pool players. My old man, when you talk about sports figures, his idea of the greatest man who ever lived was Willie Hoppy. Not, not Joe DiMaggio. Willie Hoppy. You know who Willie Hoppy was? All right. Uh, this is WOR New York, a true great.